KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Monkeypox continues to spread, and it is hitting the community of men who have sex with other men particularly hard. And the response to the outbreak continues to hit some snags. We wanted to talk about what we are seeing on the monkeypox front right now, so we caught up with Dr. Michael Levasser. He is an assistant professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at Drexel University's Dornsife School of Public Health. So as we're talking here, winding down August, how would you characterize where we are in this battle against monkeypox, this monkeypox outbreak. Slow and steady. Uh, whether or not that wins the race this time, I, I think we still have yet to see. A lot of people seem surprised at how this has exploded. Did the government, did we not appreciate the, the threat this was going to pose when it first popped up? I don't think that's the case. I mean, honestly, within a week, of this coming, I think it was like within three days of, of me knowing that there was an outbreak, at least in Europe, I was already in touch with uh, with some people over at CDC who are aware of the topic. I don't think this is a question of, of being um, unaware, um, but I think that this definitely challenges some of the ways that we have dealt with pandemics. Um, certainly, we saw a lot of the similar issues with, uh, with the COVID response. Um, and I think that we have to have a larger national conversation about um, how much we value public health and and preparedness and, you know, making sure that we fund the institutions that uh, that need them and, and make sure that we have a, a clearer pathway for access to things that are in the, um, the, the national strategic stockpile, for example, and ways that we handle uh, uh, the approval of medications that we don't really have great evidence for their use, like uh, Ticoveramat or, or TPOX, um, which is, I, I don't know that it's been controversial, but access to it has certainly been an issue. We we have this medication. Um, it's approved for, uh, for certain viruses. It's not necessarily approved for monkeypox, but it's incredibly effective against it. So, um, you know, how long do we have to wait for trials to be completed before we can, you know, actually start treating people? And that did we learn anything from COVID-19? Because I just hear a lot of echoes of the early days of COVID with monkeypox, problems getting people tested, problems, you know, allocating vaccines, problems, recognizing the threat, like kind of overall. Am I am, am I being unfair here or it just no. feels like. <laughs> Okay. Like, and it's amazing to me, like we're still in the COVID-19 pandemic, but it just feels like maybe we didn't learn that much when it comes to attacking this. Well, I think this is, I think we certainly learned a large number of lessons, whether or not we've had the chance to apply those lessons to some sort of implementation is a completely different question. You know, I think there there are a few key differences between the COVID response and uh, the monkeypox response. Uh, first and foremost, COVID was a completely novel virus that we hadn't seen before. The development of vaccines at the speed that we did and the getting the trials out and getting participants, getting the science out, that happened, that was just so quick. And we did have a rapid response for distribution and how we were, the plan to allocate uh, 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 the way that we're going to be distributing these in different phases based on, you know, level of risk group and whatnot. But I think, you know, the implementation of that on a really large scale was problematic. And I think part of that is is how we wind up viewing public health uh, in the United States. It sort of falls more on the state's rights. The purview of public health falls under the 10th Amendment. 
So, you know, each state sort of has their own response. And in a sense, with public health, that makes sense, right? Because the situation in Alaska is very different from the situation in Florida for any kind of virus, for any any kind of public health issue. But I think at the same time, we do need a strong, coordinated federal response and the ability to step in. Um, and in the past, we've done this uh, by creating these czars, like the uh, the, HIV, the AIDS czar, or the Ebola czar, uh, that can sort of sidestep a lot of these bureaucratic issues between FDA between CDC, between Health and Human Services, uh, to sort of get things more done. What we have right now with monkeypox isn't isn't exactly the kind of czarship that we have for those, but we do have um, two people who are, are pretty high up who are sort of trying to coordinate this this response a little a little better. It would have been nicer if we had that in place from the get go. I think part of the issue with public health is if you have too strong of a response and it turns out to be nothing, then you've sort of wasted money, wasted taxpayer money, and that doesn't look good. And if you wait too long, then you're incompetent. Um, and there's not exactly a whole lot of wiggle room in that sweet space in between. So I think, you know, somehow like removing the politics from public health would be super helpful, but that's never going to happen in America. Is this virus, is it doing anything we didn't expect in the way it spreads because I when I and this is I am obviously not a scientist and just early on you got the feel you it felt like this was something that was kind of difficult to spread and it feels like it is spreading a lot faster than was kind of laid out at the beginning. Number one, is that fair? And number two, is there something different here? I'm not sure that it's spreading any faster or slower than I expected. Speaking, you know, frankly about sex, when we're talking about the start of this epidemic, it occurred in places where there's high volume sex. There's people who are having lots of sex with lots of partners, and that is 100% a part of certain people's healthy sexual lifestyle. But when you're doing that, a lot of times it's anonymous. You don't know the people that you're having sex with. So contact tracing sort of breaks down. Um, and so you don't really have the ability to do that. But you do have a population, especially among uh, the queer population, uh, people who identify as gay or bi bisexual and, and gay and bisexual men in particular, who are very health positive, very health active. They're, you know, they go to the doctor regularly. They're, you know, taking medications to prevent HIV and, and getting regular STI checkups. So it's it's a group of people who are very engaged with, uh, by and large, who are very engaged with, with the health system. There are caveats to that, that we're mostly talking about upper class white men who have sex with men in that population. And it sort of breaks down when you're talking about, um, you know, the, the black and brown uh, queer individuals in, in our population. Um, it breaks down even further when you're talking about trans women of color in particular, who are very unlikely to have have healthcare to be you know mistreated in the healthcare system, especially in rural settings. So it gets, you know, it gets a little complicated um, in certain places. But you are you are talking about sort of like a really good population for this to wind up being in to to detect things early and, and to get a sense. Also, there's a lot of activism in the community. So a lot of the people who are doing the boots on the ground um, work to get vaccines in arms to get the message out happen to be people who have been equipped with doing advocacy, uh, whether it's for you know gay marriage or for um, you know ACT UP uh, in the early early days of the AIDS crisis to get you know FDA to to move faster on on doing drug response, and you have a lot of people who are in the queer community, myself included, who are, you know, scientists and we're sort of at the forefront of this or, you know, Dimitri Daskalakis, who is who's who's heading part of this at, at the, the federal level. You have a group of people who are really dedicated to getting the word out and, and, and getting this all done. The problem comes down to the allocation of tests, which we didn't have good access to until maybe two months into it. 
So if you can't test and you can't test early, then that prevents people from being able to make informed decisions about whether or not they should go and have sexual partners or if they should, you know, take a minute and step back. One of the other issues is that you can't even get tested until you have a lesion. You know, if there is a period in time where you are infectious, despite the fact that you cannot test positive, maybe you just have something that looks like a little pimple, which, you know, it's summertime. That's not uncommon among people. I get it's all the time. And that could be just what it looks like at start. And you could be very infectious at that point in time. Um, and if you can't get tested or you don't know where to go to get tested, then maybe you don't know. And you're like, eh, it's probably not that it's it, it's unlikely. So I think that's really what we're we're talking about is a place where we know this thing exists. There's a lot of awareness. A lot of people want to get access to this vaccine um, that there is, and they want to get you know the full dose of the vaccine and and two doses of it as as is recommended. We have distribution issues with the vaccine we can't get access to. So it's it's sort of like this perfect storm of of you have a, a large group of people that want it. So that's the good news. Um, but we just don't have a, a large enough supply of vaccine right now to to really get shots in arms. And the other side to it is that in many places, when you look at the numbers, those who are getting the vaccine are not those who are most at risk for getting the monkeypox. So in Philadelphia, about 56% of all of the cases that we have seen have been among Black or African-American Philadelphians. And when it comes to vaccination, uh, about 23% of those who have received the vaccine are Black or African-American. You compare that to uh, 24% of cases that are among white Philadelphians, and 57% of the vaccines have gone into white Philadelphians. So you see this topsy-turvy um, uh, flip. And we saw that with COVID and and it's one of the health disparities and it's something that we've got to reckon with and, and really deal with. And and part of that is is making sure that the providers that have access to this know who their populations are at risk. And part of it is health-seeking behavior among the populations who are at most risk. So all of this sort of builds into this where we're still seeing, you know, transmission occurring. Whether or not we've reached the the peak of it, my guess is we haven't yet, but who knows what tomorrow brings. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Michael Lavasser right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our monkeypox conversation with Dr. Michael Lavasser. I think it became kind of obvious early on that this was really spreading to your point of, of men who have sex with other men. And I feel like there were a lot of people that maybe in good faith were worried about stigma that we saw at the onset of HIV and in their efforts to not try to stigmatize we didn't appreciate where the where it was spreading the most and therefore the resources couldn't get to the right place is that a a fair criticism or am i oversimplifying I'm not sure that that's the that's been the issue with um, with the resources. In fact, if you listen to um, what uh, Dr. Fauci has said on the matter, this Genios vaccine that we have, which is the one that we're using, is sort of the one that we're we're predominantly giving the, the strategic national stockpile. The reason that we have this vaccine there in the first place is in the event that there's a smallpox situation. Um, and the other uh, the other vaccine that we have for smallpox, and I cannot recall the name of it right now, we have a lot more of that supply than we do of the Genios. The Genios is literally there for those who may have more uh, compromised immune systems. 
And so we have less of that because there are fewer immunocompromised Americans. But now you have a population where there's a large population of men who are HIV positive. Um, they may be perfectly healthy. They may not actually be immunocompromised because they're controlled through medication. But the better safe than sorry route is to give the Genios vaccine, which is a, an attenuated live virus vaccine. So it's replication deficient. So it can't actually replicate. Whereas ACAM, which is the other vaccine, is a replication competent vaccine. So it's it's a live virus that is sort of been degraded to a sense to make it like weaker, but it's still it's still live and capable of, of replicating. Whereas the Genios vaccine cannot replicate. There has been a lot of discussion about talking about monkeypox as an STI. There seems like there's a lot of back and forth. Where is it? Should we identify this as an STI? And if so, why? Or if not, why not? Do you think? I'm going to go um, with with a different uh, answer to this than than perhaps is expected, but I think it doesn't make a difference. I think that whether it's it's through uh, close intimate contact or through sexual fluids, I, I think that ultimately the when it comes to prevention, when it comes to treatment, when it comes to testing, it's all the same. You know, limit the number of sex partners. You know, make sure you get vaccinated. Perhaps condoms. Condoms still likely wouldn't be all that effective in in preventing um, this virus if. The primary method of transmission is through contact with sores. Now, there is this really big, important question about whether or not the, there is um, virus in semen. So we have identified DNA in semen of the virus. Uh, we have not, to my knowledge, I have heard stories that we've identified. We've actually been able to culture virus. I've not seen that data. So, so far as we know, it's just DNA, which could just be that it's being broken down in the body. And that's one of the ways that it's being excreted. Um, that's not uncommon for a virus. So, uh, so there's a couple situations. Um, we also know that there are people who have asymptomatic infection, uh, meaning that they are, they've tested positive for the virus, but they have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. So there's a couple of scenarios. Number one, there's absolutely no um, viable virus in semen for most people. And then we're talking that it's not sexually transmitted because it has to be through fluids. There's another scenario where it is in, uh, there is infectious virus in semen, um, that it's only present at high levels towards the end of the infection. Um, in which case that's a concern for when can I go back to having regular sex and should people continue wearing condoms for three, four, five, six months after the infection is resolved? Um, how, and how long is that period? No one wouldn't, no one knows yet. Uh, but we've seen that with things like Zika. Um, we've seen things like that with, uh, with Ebola, I believe, um, can stand in, in the semen for, for quite some time. Not that I think that there have been any cases of sexual transmission of Ebola, but it's possible. Doesn't mean that it's probable. There's another version where uh, where levels of, of uh, virus are high in the semen early in the infection, um, prior to perhaps even when um, uh, lesions show up, in which case we're talking perhaps more about asymptomatic transmission um, or perisymptomatic um, transmission, which would be a pretty big public health concern um, if it's if it's transmitting that way. Um, and then there's, you know, a third option where it's sort of at all those points in time and, and everywhere in between. But, you know, you're not having a whole lot of sex when you're in the middle of a monkeypox infection. You're just not feeling good. Um, you're probably you're potentially in a lot of pain um, and, you know, you've got pox all over your body. So you may not feel the most attractive. So um, I think with all that, you know, it comes down to like our prevention methods don't change, whether it is true, truly sexual transmission. Um, but 
chances are is that it's a combination of of modes of, of transmission and there's still the question of droplet transmission through um through respiratory i mean we know that there's there's virus in saliva or dna in saliva uh same situation with the semen we're not sure if it's viable virus but we have thought in the past that monkeypox can be transmitted through droplet transmission so you know there's all sorts of questions around that but you know in endemic regions the most common way of transmission is through the consumption of bushmeat you eat, you consume an infected animal, you have a, an open wound in your mouth or something like that, and you get an infection. So context is important. You mentioned earlier the the T-pox. I've read a couple stories of people who really had to work to get it, but once they got it, it was incredibly effective. Are we getting hung up in our own bureaucracy with this? You know, why isn't this easier to access? I think it's important to point out that monkeypox isn't new. In Nigeria, we've been having uh, an epidemic since 2017. So we had the ability to run clinical trials. We had the ability to send vaccine that we had that we instead decided to throw out to Nigeria. So th- those are some bigger issues that we have with you know the global picture of public health. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we don't have a good plan for what happens if we need to act in an emergency. Um, And for all the years of emergency preparedness, our scenarios haven't played out the way that we thought that they would when we're actually challenged with it. So, um, you know, you talk about a drug like T-Pox, like typically would have to go through the channels that you typically do for any medication it has to be FDA approved. It's got to go through clinical trials, got to make sure that it's safe, and that it's effective, that it doesn't have um, serious uh, complications. And that's all really important. Um, we, we don't just, uh, you know, throw out snake oil in the United States, or at least not since around 1917. I, I do think that the due process is important, but I don't think that that should delay access to a treatment that we're pretty sure is good. We know it's safe. We just don't know how effective it is. And I think that the same story goes for the vaccine. We're not entirely sure how effective the vaccine is against this virus. We don't know how effective this mode of this new mode of um, uh, vaccination is going to be the the intradermal uh, with the one fifth dosing, and you know spreading apart the first and second doses for however long we're going to have to. So there's there's a lot of big questions we don't have an answer to, and I know the public is getting more and more frustrated that we don't have answers. But I, I think people are working on this, and we'll we'll have answers. But I don't. Certainly, I thought that we'd have more answers today than we happen to. And is that just, I'm imagining it's not just one thing, it's lack of public health funding, it's bureaucratic red tape, uh, maybe some human error or lack of imagination. We're not just dealing with one thing when it comes to that, right? And there's also, you know, public health infrastructure has seen a lot of exhaustion. There's been a lot of people who have left public health departments um, in the past six months. There have been, you know, during the COVID pandemic, during the height of it, there were a lot of uh, public health officials getting um, death threats to them and their families uh, for, you know, doing things like closing beaches and and doing the work of public health. So you have you have some public servants who don't get paid a lot of money, who are um, trying to do the best for their communities, who aren't appreciated by their communities. So I think, you know, we need to give public health a whole lot more love. And I think, you know, before 2020, a lot of people didn't even know what public health was. Um, and maybe still people don't know what public health is. But it's it's a broader conversation that we should have. And we certainly need to be increasing our funding um, for public health infrastructure. Are we at a point where we just have to, is monkeypox just kind of going to be here 
for a while? Is there a way we could contain this, or is this this is just going to we'll just have ebbs and flows and in infections? But this is this is life for the foreseeable future. Well, the good news is that um, with monkeypox, so far as we know, when you have had an infection, you will never get infected again. Now, we know that that's true for something like chickenpox, which, by the way, is not a pox virus. But I am a case of someone who has had chickenpox twice. I had a very, very mild case of chickenpox when I was very young. And then I was exposed when I was 15, right before finals, my, I think, sophomore year of high school. And I got a really bad case of chickenpox. Um, so I'm not saying that it's not possible to be infected twice, but it's very unlikely. So I think that there's still a possibility that we can see this virus burn out. Uh, burnout is a term that we use when it, there's no one left who is um, susceptible to be infected. That's sort of a nightmare scenario, considering how much uh, uh, vaccine we've distributed so far. Um, but hopefully, you know, we we get enough vaccine out there that we can actually make a huge dent in this. And, and that's still on the table. But a part of the issue is not everyone who is at risk, not everyone who is a man who has sex with men is going to go to their doctor and say, hey, I need the monkeypox shot because maybe their doctor doesn't know that they engage in that behavior. Or maybe their uh, their, their doctor um, uh, uh, it might be you know homophobic or, or something like that, uh, which happens in our healthcare system. Um, so I, I think that the places where I'm most concerned are where people fall through the cracks. And I think that's all, almost always going to be the case in public health is you always have to make sure that you're mindful of those who who can fall through the, through the, uh, the cracks of our system um, and setting up some kind of safety net to, to make sure that those people can have access in a way that is non-stigmatic, non-judgmental. Um, and, uh, and also they get the information and support that they need. Um, is really important to really turn this this ship around. I, I don't think that containment is off of the table yet, just because of the nature of the virus. It's it's not all that easy to transmit. It really isn't. Hopefully that stays true, and um, and and we can see this this start to turn in the U.S. I believe in the U.K. it's already started to turn. There's, they've started to see a decline in cases uh, in the in the past couple of weeks. So. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.